There is a content warning for this episode as it discusses gambling and touches on suicidal thoughts. Please consider this before you continue to listen. Welcome to Inspirational Tales. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest on this episode is Kate Seselja. For 12 years, Kate struggled with a gambling addiction to the pokies on which she gambled half a million dollars in total. After hitting her rock bottom and almost taking her own life, she found help and began her recovery. Kate now uses her lived experience and training as a recovery coach to coach, educate and inspire others. She's an advocate for gambling reform and the founder of The Hope Project. In this interview, Kate shares her own journey through gambling and recovery, as well as her knowledge of the industry and how we can support those who are impacted by gambling harm. This is such an insightful conversation and I hope after hearing Kate's story that you gain a better understanding of this topic as a whole. Hi Kate, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. So to start with today, I wanted to ask you why you actively share your story and speak out about gambling. To be honest, it's not something that I ever thought I would end up doing. I had no idea that the life that I have right now was even possible. A few short years ago, I didn't think there was uh, any future that I could see. But I guess to answer your question, it's to try and help others because I know firsthand what it's like to struggle with addiction and feel profoundly misunderstood and to be just unaware of all that's at play when you're in the grip of struggle and how that blinds you from being able to access help effectively, restore your strength and um, move forward with your life and your learnings. I really, really appreciate that you you do that and that you're doing this because I feel like this is a topic that isn't really spoken about very much and stories like you, I know I personally have never heard one before until I came across you and yeah, you have actively put yourself out there. You've been on TV shows, you've been active in a lot of places. So I believe you would be helping so many people with just sharing your story. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. I think every single, you know, bit of media that I have done has had an impact on somebody. You know, at least one person has reached out to me after anything that's gone out. So I know that I'm on the right path. Yeah, definitely. So before we get into what happened with you and your gambling story, can you take us back to before that? So you started gambling when you were 18, but can you take us back to say your teenage years and tell us who Kate was back there and what your life looked like back that time? My life before gambling, gosh, I grew up in a large family in Sydney and had just such a great childhood, close with my siblings. My mum and dad are amazing. I loved working in the hospitality industry. I, you know, loved to go out with my friends. And I had a boyfriend and he, you know, wanted to go to a club often um, because he liked to gamble. And one day I was like, oh, well, I'm sitting here. I might as well play it with you. 
And, you know, I just had no idea at that time what I was getting into. So can you tell us about that first time that you did gamble? I put like $20 in and I won quite quickly and it was quite a large amount of money. And I think from memory, my brain just was like, oh, (laughs) that was easy. Like, why would you work so hard at the supermarket or whatever other job that I had at the time when you can earn so much so quickly? And that, that was that first kind of illusion of it's easy money. Now you're talking about pokies. Yes. As an advocate for gambling reform, I'm now across the you know whole gamut of products that are harming Australians, um, not just poker machines. But for me, my personal lived experience was with using poker machines. I actually heard an interview the other day. I turned on the TV randomly and there was actually a guy being interviewed, some gambling expert. And I was shocked that he said that in a year, the Australians lose something like $24 billion and $15 billion of that is on the pokies. And I was so surprised because I didn't think the pokies would be that big of an issue, especially now when we've got apps and things on our phones that you don't actually have to go to a machine to do. But wow, like $15 billion a year. It's huge. It is. It's a lot of money being lost by our people in our communities. And it's been going on for decades. And it's because it's so prevalent, it's so available, it's been normalized. And it's really a toxic product in social spaces that people often go to for you know, gatherings or work meetings or weddings and things like that, that they're not primarily there to gamble initially. But when they become involved with the machines, then you suddenly start to notice them everywhere and the engagement with them increases. So how did you go from gambling that first time to becoming addicted and spending many, many years and I think you lost, was it half a million dollars all up? Mm-hmm. How did you go from that first initial putting money into that pokey machine to becoming like that? It's such a gradual process. It's not something that I was aware of. So I didn't kind of see the signs of distress that I was in and notice or have any kind of a plan or a clue what to do next. But quite quickly, I was losing, you know, my whole pay on payday or spending more time in a venue than I wanted to, you know, just not being able to leave until either all my money was gone or I was severely out of time. So those kind of warning signs were there, but I wasn't able to recognize them because I just kept thinking, oh, I'm either chasing losses or feeling bad about money I was owing people or whatever was going on, but it wasn't clear in my mind, this is a problem and I need to help fast. So how much time do you think you were spending on the machines? It really varied. Sometimes just hours and hours. You can lose 
money at the rate of $200 a minute. On a minute? A minute. Wow. So I didn't even know that. You know, I'm just feeding money into this thing like paper into a shredder, not even consciously aware of how much, you know, I'm feeding into it at that rate until I did the sums on it to work out just how fast people are losing money per minute. So you can imagine it comes down to either your money that you've put into the machine buys you a certain amount of time and you may have a win, but then because it's intentionally designed to addict, it's very hard for you to think, oh, is that it? You're so drawn to it's the next press, it's the next press, it's the next press. So it puts you in like this trance-like state that even if you have a, a win, and I'll use big air quotes, you end up playing it down to nothing because you simply can't withdraw yourself away from the machine. And that, you know, feeling of not being in control of myself, being at war with my mind was something that I thought was unique to myself and have come to realise that it's how it's been designed to addict. And one of those features is called losses disguised as wins. So say you bet $5 and the lights and sounds will go off like you've won, but it's only $2. So it celebrates you losing $3 that's registered in your brain as a win. So you're conditioned to keep pressing even though you're actually losing money. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. It's deceptive. Yeah. Again, stuff I didn't know at the time. <laughs> and I think a lot of people probably don't know. Absolutely. It's a really powerful mental hijack. It's the only way of being able to describe it. It's a mental hijack without consent. Wow. That does sound very powerful when you put it that way. Mm. So where were you getting the money from? Mostly my own wages. Sometimes, you know, in the early days, I would borrow money off my parents or my siblings. Later in life, after we were married, yeah, it was just coming out of our business, out of credit cards, out of our mortgage, whatever I could access. So how did your gambling then start to affect your life? Oh, it impacted my life in every way imaginable. It started by destroying my self-esteem and my mental security because I kept asking myself what's wrong with me and mm. that's just the wrong question to ask yourself with this addiction because there's nothing wrong with the individual who's impacted by gambling harm. It's the intent of the design. You know, mm. my body was responding exactly to the specifications of its design, of its creation. So beating yourself up for not being able to be in control of it is the wrong approach. People who are experiencing gambling harm, the first thing that I say to a person is, it's okay, there's nothing wrong with you. You just didn't know what you've been engaging with all this time. Uh, you didn't understand that the creator ha has said, you know, I designed the perfect mousetrap. 
like how diabolical is that for him to have full knowledge of how much harm he could do another human being and do it anyway yeah so meeting a person with compassion who's in the grip of this struggle is paramount not judgment and become educated in its design in the whole ecosystem of harm that surrounds this industry so that you can help that person step out of the personal shame that they're drowning in by not knowing all that's at play. I think it was very interesting watching. So you were on You Can't Ask That on ABC. I love that show because it brings up so many topics and questions that, you know, people generally maybe don't know the answers to but want to ask. But um, you were on, a sh- on one about gambling and one of the questions that was asked, and I think probably a lot of people might think this, is why don't you just stop? Mm-hmm. Can you answer that for us from a gambler's perspective? Yeah, that's, it's always been such a frustrating thing, obviously, and it, it speaks to the lack of community awareness around this industry and this problem for for it to be just we'll just stop stopping is only part of what needs to happen here and expecting somebody to be able to do that and not be given the opportunity to understand the whole system of gambling to step out of personal shame by being given this information that I you know now share with people shame's one of the primary reason that people keep going back because until there's that liberation from it it's really really hard to describe how destroyed you are as a human being because you could be acting completely rational and making great choices in your life you know in all these other ways But with this one particular area, you have absolutely no idea what comes over you when it's you and money and time and the machine until that's explained by, you know, I point people towards the documentary Ka-Ching. That's a really powerful tool at helping liberate people from shame. People don't get it and they just have a really simplistic you know, attitude that, that's very ignorant and it's, it's judgment-fueled, it's not compassion-fueled. Just removing a person from that environment without helping to restore their connection back to themselves, their, their self-esteem, their self-care, their self-awareness, you know, it's only part of what's really going on. So throughout these years that you were actively gambling, Did you realise that there was a problem? Did you tell anyone? Did you look for help at all? I'm not talking about once you started to recover. I'm talking about throughout the years that you were actively gambling. Yes, I did. So 97, I first began when I was 18. When I met my husband, um, we moved to Canberra. So I had a break at that point. I'd thought that my life had taken a positive turn and I was leaving gambling in Sydney and going to Canberra to start a new life. 
I hadn't addressed the shame and the confusion and the, you know, the impacts that had happened at that point. Um, I just kind of moved away from them. So when gambling, you know, re-entered my life a couple of years into our marriage, that just came, you know, all those feelings that I hadn't really dealt with came roaring back. Accessing help at that point when I'd started gambling again early in our marriage, I rang Lifeline one night because I was just so stressed out about money and how, you know, it was just so out of control in my life. And I was told, just don't wear shoes. If you don't wear shoes, you won't ever be able to get into a venue, so you won't be able to gamble. No. A hundred percent. Oh, no. And I was like, um, I've got, you know, two small kids. I, I don't think this is really going to be a long-term <laughs> solution for me. Is there a rehab I can go to? You know, if I was addicted to drinking or drugs, I could go to a rehab. And she said, no, there's no rehab for gambling. And if there was, it would just be for men. For men? Yeah. Like there was only, she made it seem like only men struggled with gambling. So that was just, this is in 2003. So it's not current, but that was the first time I put my hand up for help. And it was so mismanaged in that moment that, I, you know, was left to think I've got to figure this out on my own and keep going forward. And the next time one of our friends had noticed and knew somebody who knew a psychologist, so I started seeing her, but that was $200 a session. And so that just added more financial stress to the situation and it really didn't kind of get to anything's there was no talk of you're not alone this is addiction by design it was none of that language or vernacular back then it was just what's wrong with you why do you keep spending this money don't you know you'd be better off if you didn't all of that just really shaming language and just made me feel worse about it all then I had another counsellor a couple of years later. She was better, but she was divorced. And then she was trying to kind of counsel me out of my marriage because she <laughs> felt she felt that uh, that it was clearly what was, go- you know, the dysfunction in my marriage that was the problem. So as I said, it was really not great, <laughs> but. I guess what people take away from my story is keep trying to access help. Like at the end of the day, if you don't like the counsellor you're sitting, go find another one. Don't wait the three years it took me, you know, in between putting my hand up for help. Just accept someone's humanness if it's unhelpful and go go somewhere else. Keep looking for help. Don't just go, oh, it's too hard. I've got to figure it out on my own. No, there is amazing help and support these days, which is free and not only accessible for the individual who's struggling, but family and friends, anybody impacted by gambling is able to access free face-to-face counselling and financial counselling. 
And that's a really, really important thing at being able to help come alongside a person and help them regain control and management of their finances because that shame plus financial stress are the two main factors that keep fueling people back into gambling. I will pop some details in the show notes for this episode as well if you do need help or support. Can you take us through the, I guess, rock bottom moment that you had that then led you to begin your recovery? January 2012. Now, January was always, you know, a really stressful month because Christmas had just happened and, you know, it was a down time in the construction industry. So there would always be like a lull in the invoices that we were able to to put out and manage through that season. So you were in the construction industry? Yeah, my husband is. And so I would just always distress in January. And this one day, you know, I got a check in the mail and it was able to be cashed. And so I cashed it and went and gambled it. And it was just the lowest point at that stage you know I I had gambled other large amounts than that but I think I was just so mentally physically emotionally done in this whole cycling in and out of trying to manage it and trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with me that after all of it was gone. You know, I just sat there staring at the nil balance on the machine, just in total disbelief that I'd done it again. And I just had no more words. I couldn't answer the phone. My phone was ringing. Everyone was trying to find me and I just couldn't. I was pregnant with our sixth child and I tried to figure out how to take my life but not hers and I couldn't so after another couple of hours I answered the phone and my husband just said please just come home and when I got home he just knew that if he didn't do something different I wouldn't be here anymore. I guess it stopped being my problem and it became our problem. I felt like he really came alongside me and we went the next morning and found a new counsellor and she was amazing. But because of my previous experience, you know, even driving there the next morning, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just bide my time until the baby's born and you know, then I can leave. But miraculously, she was amazing at helping me connect to me and started to pique my curiosity with what I didn't know about myself and what I didn't know about the whole gambling environment. And that thirst then for knowledge and information and that 
was the game changer. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, one one moment, you know, led to the next and later on I joined a group and when Zoe was born, she came with me to the group in her little capsule and, <laughs> oh. you know, everyone loved her and then after about 18 months, I trained to take over that group and then I got the opportunity to be a lived experience speaker and everything just kind of kept moving forward from that point. So after you saw that counsellor, how difficult was it though, even if you had that knowledge and the support that she gave you, the support that your family was giving you, how difficult was it for you to stop? It was definitely the hardest thing I've ever had to do and when it was explained to me that gambling addiction is just as neurologically powerful as a cocaine addiction, I felt extreme relief. I felt like, wow, <laughs> because there's no physical signs of slurring or being out of it like you're on drugs, people just assume you can just flick the switch and just don't do it. You know, it just goes back to that that ignorance of how there's an invisible mental hijack. You think about it, you dream about it, you stress about money. It just occupies your mind all the time. And to give myself time to reclaim my mind was so important. How long do you think it took? Actually, can I, before I ask you that, can I ask, as a problem gambler, do you ever fully recover or is it something that you have to continue to work on? The language that I just want to correct you on there is a person impacted by gambling harm. Sorry. That's okay. I don't mean to offend anybody. No, that's okay. It's normal for you to use that vernacular because... That's what the industry's put out there. They're problem gamblers. No, <laughs> the problem is the gambling products. A person impacted by gambling harm is there's no one size fits all. You know, it can impact anybody. And to say that everybody recovers 100% would be inaccurate. Is it possible for everyone to recover 100%? Yes, but that comes down to to what extent is a person liberated from shame? Because as I said, the shame and the impacts of it can be very damaging to a human being. So if they feel like they're less than or profoundly judged, then that may impact how they engage with gambling in the future. I don't know. How long did it take for you to feel like you had control again? I think that was something that I really, I struggled to know what a healthy relationship with that was at the time. You know, I, I kept thinking, I feel strong, but is that just me being naive? Like, am I, am I able to like really feel like I'm me again? Or is that just stupid? Is that setting myself up for a fall? And it came to a head 
when somebody came up to me and said, how's your recovery going? And I just went, oh, okay, there it is. I felt that I didn't want to be in recovery for the rest of my life. I wanted to be just any other normal human being who's made a mistake, full stop, because we're all fallible. So why do some people get to, you know, be normal and others get to be addicts? That just didn't make any sense to me. So I really just moved away from that addict mentality to reclaiming my whole humanness and being like, yeah, I struggled with gambling, but I'm a human being and I'm now just continuing in my life like everybody else is. And I'm not being defined by the mistakes that I've made, just as I wouldn't define you by yours. So that was, yeah, a real turning point in not only the movement of the Hope Project, but in my own personal well-being. So with that, you just mentioned the Hope Project. When did you decide to start that and start helping others? And can you explain what you do? I think it was really born in those early days of me restoring me and then having that opportunity to be there for others. As I said, when I trained to take over the Smart Recovery Group, I was sitting there on a Monday night waiting for people to turn up. But I thought, oh my gosh, I'm waiting for people to walk through the door whose lives have already imploded. And as much as I love being here for people and helping them find peace again and answers, I want to go further upstream because it's not okay that this keeps happening. So that's what led me to go public with my story and reclaim my whole self, you know, so I felt like there was nothing anyone couldn't ask me. There was nothing I was afraid of. I spent 15 years protecting this secret of I've struggled with gambling, prepared to take it to the grave because I was so afraid of my humanness. And I thought, what the hell am I doing? Why why do we think that we're not allowed to struggle? Especially when we're not even being honest with the environments that we've set people up to fail. Now, we live in a culture, in an era right now of addiction by design, full stop. Not just in the gambling space, but you name it. The human being is being targeted by any number of companies from, you know, wanting you on social media to wanting you to have fast foods. You're just being marketed to. 24 7 like never before but one of the biggest players in that predatory space is the gambling industry every man woman and child is being hunted and groomed for engagement in gambling it's just a fact of our times at the moment and it's disgusting so not being clear with that messaging is doing everybody a disservice I think we have a real opportunity to use our lived experience to bring to our collective awareness harms that we've just allowed to propagate 
and, and happen without really considering the cost that's taking on our society. So if we don't share our lived experience and create change through that, then we're just leaving the, the floodgates wide open for the next generation to experience harm. There's a couple of things there. I'm obviously not in the space like you are and I'm not impacted by it, but I think everyone can see the amount of advertising that is everywhere in terms of gambling as a whole, not just obviously not pokies, which you were involved in, but, you know, sports-related gambling, apps on our phones, there's ads on TV. I was looking at the weather app on my phone just this morning and there was a big gambling ad along the bottom. You just can't get away from it, I feel like. So in in 2022, where we are now, and having all of this happening around you, how is that impacting people who are gamblers and then I guess the next generation coming through that are seeing this and seeing probably that this is normal? Yes, unfortunately, they they do and have accepted it as a normal landscape. But just because it is doesn't mean it should be. And Mm -hmm. pushing back on creating the norms that we want to see, not the norms that we've been expected to just accept uh, without challenge. And the media always tries to bait me, you know, on, well, what do you want to see? You know, like trying to paint me like, uh, uh, you know, the fun police. Oh, I just want to get rid of all gambling and then everything would be roses. No, what I want is a fair playing field, which there just isn't at the moment. So when someone challenges me, oh, do you want to see pokies gone? I say to them, well, when a venue becomes acutely aware of the harm that the pokies have done in their community, they don't just lower the number of pokies they have available. They go pokey free. And I think that speaks volumes of what level of harm are we okay with? You know, influencers like Jay Shetty, very early on in the piece, now he communicates with millions and millions of people. He very early on in the piece made it very clear that he was not going to say yes to gambling advertising. And they, he was offered millions to use his platform to promote gambling. And he said no, and he made a big deal of it. And there's on the flip side, you know, how many celebrities have you seen sell out to gambling companies? So many. And they're using that influence to normalise a really predatory industry. And that's just not okay. Um, The AFL in Victoria are leading the way here to say no to gambling sponsorship. Certain clubs, not all of them, but there's... Because the footy is one that's... You can't watch the footy without seeing it out every two seconds. Yeah, the NRL has a long way to go. (laughs) Oh, I'm talking about AFL. I'm in Melbourne. Yeah, no. So AFL, it's called Love the Game, Not the Odds. It's a movement. um, And so far they've got 734 sporting clubs signed up to that movement that have said no to gambling sponsorship. Now, of course, you know that that's not the whole gamut of clubs at this stage but that's an incredible movement and shift from where we were 
And if it's possible in that, and I think another sport that's just slipped my mind has said no to gambling sponsorship too recently, and I can't remember which one it is, but it's possible, but it takes leadership. And we live in a philanthropic era. I mean, there's no reason that gambling money is the only money that's available for sponsorship. It's just easy money because people, they're not willing to make the tough choices. They're just making the easy ones. And that means turning a blind eye to the harm that's caused by it. And it doesn't make any kind of sense in an era that's so meant to be socially responsible and ethically based decisions. Why aren't we making them on this front? I feel like this is very... So there are obviously other issues that, you know, looking back 10 years ago were probably similar and we've come a long way now with them, but I feel like gambling hasn't. When I first started in the hospitality industry, I'd come home every night reeking of smoke because I'm serving food in smoke-filled restaurants. Now that environment changed. No one ever thought it would, but it did. And that's the landscape that we have to move towards. When we're thinking about, well, what reforms do we need for poker machines? Similar approach to smoking, plain packaging. If we could do it for cigarettes, we need to be able to do it for poker machines. Reducing $1 max bets at the moment in some states, it's still $10. And that's where you lose $200 a minute on them. Banning the losses disguised as wins feature, um, reducing access hours. Some venues are open 24-7 and that's just crazy. We don't need that much access to gambling products, especially they're being housed in once upon a time venues that were created for social connection. Now they're just gambling venues. So if someone's listening is impacted by gambling, I hope that was the correct terminology, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or know someone that is, what advice would you give to them? It's a really, really tough thing to kind of approach out of the blue. If you're aware that somebody is struggling with gambling, perhaps try and mention you know that you saw this really great documentary and do this kind of subtle stealth approach you know allow them to receive information without being judged or confronted first so you know introduce them to a podcast or a the documentary Kaching, something like that that could help them discover that it's not that they're broken that there's stuff that they just don't know yet framing it like that or I'm concerned about your well-being not I'm noticing that you've done this 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 and this really a compassion fueled approach not a shame and judgment fueled approach that is essential perhaps mention the free financial counseling because often you know if a person's experiencing financial distress they don't know that that's available They don't know that they can have free, anonymous help and support. But often, you know, I just really find myself being, you know, a conduit for people to 
kind of understand what's going on within themselves by, you know, the stories or the, the things that I've put out there and they'll reach out and feel understood first and then they're able to kind of take those next steps. Sometimes it might look like self-exclusion, helping somebody make that choice to have that time and space, make an empowered choice to remove yourself from being able to access venues so that you can give your body time to reset. That's really, really important. Yeah, I think helping them to feel like they're not alone. You know, when we're the number one gambling nation in the world, nobody. Really? Yes. That's that's a list that we shouldn't be topping. But we're, no. as I said, it's open season on Australians because gambling markets know that we have very relaxed regulations and the consumer here is not protected, period. So whether it's online or in venue, there's gambling harm happening all around and because it's so in easily hidden, people don't often know until either all the money's gone or the person is dead. And that's not an outcome that I could just sit by and allow to keep happening. How proud of yourself are you for where you are now? Because I think this is something that's not really spoken about, the fact that there is hope that you can recover mm-hmm. and you're proof of that. I, I love that, like, I have such open dialogue with my kids. Like, that's been everything that... I've spoken at their schools. I don't care who knows that, guess what? I'm a human being and I wasn't the perfect mum. That's an illusion. You know, I'd rather be an authentic mum, an intentional mum and a mum that can talk to her kids about anything than to try and pretend like I have everything all together and I've never made a mistake. What was I modelling in that? That if they ever had any struggles, that they couldn't come to me if I'd kept up that facade of, it's fine, you know, everything's fine. No, things weren't okay. Sometimes, especially early on, I used to get sad and think about things and wished that I could change them, but what I had to try and realise was I can't go back. I couldn't change how it was at that time. I didn't know what I know now. And I thought if I keep flogging myself with shame, then I'm not going to be able to be present. I'm going to be always living through the lens of regret, through the lens of the past, and I won't be able to see the future and be there for them with what they need. And changing that attitude towards myself, allowing for my humanness to be there, was actually handed to me by my eldest son at the time that I almost didn't come home. And that morning after, he he noticed that, you know, everyone had been looking for me and he challenged me on it. He said, Mum, where were you? No one could find you. What what was happening? And I, I said, mate, I've just made 
so many mistakes, I don't know what to do. And he said, Mum, everyone makes mistakes. Oh. And I was like, oh, you're right. You are very right. And that just allowed me to then afford that to them. I'm not, I don't hold them up to an unrealistic expectation of what a human being is or isn't because we're all okay with our humanness. We just try and do our best every day and there's healing and growth that happens through the challenges that arise along the way. But I guess I never thought at the time that there would be anything good that came from those 15 years that I struggled. But now I realise that none of it was wasted because every single thing I accumulated during that time has come into play in my advocacy or in my recovery coaching with other people. If you've not lived it, then how can you teach it? It breaks my heart that over 400 people a year take their life in this country from gambling harm related suicides and I think of all of the incredible knowledge and insight that that person has that no one will ever know because they felt alone in it and I don't want that to keep happening. Thank you for speaking up about all of this and making everyone aware that it is okay to ask for help. It's okay to say that you're not okay and it is not shameful. I think that's a big thing of what you've been saying to do that. And I feel like this is very similar to kind of what mental health was like a few years ago. Mm. And then over the past couple of years, especially I find with COVID, it's been brought up a lot more and everyone is now saying it's okay to not be okay. And I think that the gambling issue is a very similar thing but we're just not there yet in how we speak about it and how it's been brought out into the world so thank you so much for being someone that is doing that for everybody and I will pop Kate's details in the show notes for this episode if you would like to get in touch with her or find out more about what she's doing Um, I do have one final question for you if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be just be kinder to you Really, I cared too much about what other people thought of me that I almost completely lost sight of who I was. So being able to be me, (laughs) being okay with my humanness was everything. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me and everybody listening today. It's been fantastic to hear from you. And I look forward to hopefully things changing a bit in the future. I think we are getting louder. Lived experience voices are coming together more and more. And I think that there is an appetite for change. People are sick of accepting the status quo because it's not okay. I 100% agree. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Jess. If after listening to this episode you need help or support, please contact Gambler's Help on 1800 858 858 or Lifeline on 131114. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inspirational Tales. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could please share it with your family and friends so that we can inspire more people. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please don't forget to leave us a rating or review and make sure that you have subscribed or followed the podcast on whichever platform that you are listening to it on so that you can stay up to date as new episodes are released. Thanks again and I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Inspirational Tales.